you know, you couldn't get an answer because nobody would, you know, would make a decision. And the so it's froze up. Yeah. In other words, so you almost have a force majeure type thing in the financial system. Mm. And uh, naturally, these are all things uh, waiting for bid. And you did the best you can to try to resurrect that. But that just turned out to be a, a disaster, at least in time. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Join our community to claim your podcast listener discount on my Valuation Masterclass Boot Camp. This is where students learn how to value companies like a pro and advance their career. Go to myworstinvestmentever.com to join our community for free and claim that discount. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy, and I'm here with Joseph Frankie. Joe, are you ready to rock? I'm ready to rock. Let's do it. I'm going to introduce you to the audience. Joe Frankie is a West Point grad who had a full multifunctional career as a war fighter and logistician. Did I say that right? You got it. Nailed it. I'm, I'm working on it. Today, he helps leaders build a bridge from where they are now to where they want to go. Most often, he helps 40-plus-year-olds figure out what is next. He assists leaders internationally online. Joe, take a minute and fill any further tidbits about yourself. Okay. Tidbits about myself is uh, I graduated from high school. Uh, a month later, I was at West Point. And then 34 years later, I was outside of West Point <laughs> into the private sector and had a great Army career and then, you know, worked on deals. And one of the things we're going to talk about, you know, my, my worst deal ever. <laughs> yeah. So tell me, you know, I, I like what you say is that you help. 40 plus year olds mainly, obviously you can help someone younger, but 40 plus year olds, you know, we need it and we're looking for, and we're looking, you know, I think in my case, as I've gotten older, I realized like, okay, there's a horizon coming. I remember my father saying for the first time in my life, I see a shrinking horizon rather than an expanding horizon. And that was pretty scary. And, and I think that as I worked my butt off to make money and make my name and make myself successful, I kind of didn't, I didn't even think about legacy. I don't think you think about that when you're young, but as you get 40 plus and you think about, okay, what am I doing? And am I enjoying what I'm doing and all that? Maybe you could just tell us about the typical type of, you know, what you bring to the typical person that you work with who is facing some of those questions and challenges. Well, the reason I, and, and I had some help with some people saying, Joe, what we really do is help 40 plus year olds because at that point, you know, the, ex the executive recruiters are not calling you, you know, if you need to do something else, hey, you're going to have to do the heavy lifting, you know, all the people that used to call you and get you to move to the next opportunity, that, that's few and far between because you have less than a 15 year bandwidth if you're in the corporate world. And so uh, that shrinking bandwidth um, just limits your opportunities. And so, you really have to be world-class at merchandising yourself. 
so that you can be found by those searching out there. And the way to do that currently is with a Rock the World LinkedIn profile, because the type of jobs that you need as a 40 plus year old, they're the type of jobs that are not published. They're given to in-house recruiters, corporate recruiters, contract recruiters. And so the hunt is on, you know, you just can't see that you're being hunted. So your best chance is, hey, make sure that the bait you have out there is the best that it can possibly be. And I can't tell you how many people I've worked with that really just don't know how to merchandise themselves. Mm. And I learned that from being an executive recruiter for over seven years and watch, um, you know, people and kind of deal with them, helping them to better sell themselves for lack of better term. So I'm looking at your LinkedIn profile right now and I see, you know, you got a a banner that says build a bridge from where you are now to where you want to go. That's great. You know, there's great advice right there for the listeners is build a banner that really helps you. The other thing I'm looking at is I'm looking at, you know, kind of your title and I don't know what it's called a headline nowadays. So it says Mm -hmm. CEO, board member, LinkedIn coach, speaker, and consultant and co-author of LinkedIn, The Five-Minute Drill. That's interesting. And, you know, a lot of other stuff that you've got in there. Is that part of what you're talking about, about helping people to, to, to make sure that they make a footprint out there? Yeah, so you're, basically you're in a content war with your peers. And so, first of all, more content is better. And then above that, compelling content. It trumps more content. Compelling content means everything matches up. You know how to measure your production. You got all the stuff that anybody would need to know about you so that you can, somebody used to seven or eight years ago, we, when we found somebody, oh, I think, I think Andrew probably did this. Let me give him a call. Mm. Today, you don't call anybody. You just go to the next guy or gal. Good point. And one last thing I would say about this is, if I, uh, I'll, I'll pull up my profile. I basically changed one thing on my profile that really made a big difference. And that is I started calling myself the worst. And I say the worst podcast host of my worst investment ever podcast. And that is a form of branding. And what mm-hmm. I can say is that when I did that, I started getting inbound messages. And people started writing me. And I think that, you know, the common question is, why do you call yourself the worst? (laughs) And my answer is always the same, because you wrote me. There you go. (laughs) In fact, uh, fact, uh, one of the reasons, you know, the last words in that headline are, hey, uh, I'm a guest for radio, TV, podcasts, all that kind of stuff. And used to, I used to chase it. And now, you know, I get calls and determine which ones I'm going to do. That's good. That's good advice. So I'm looking at that. That's interesting. Well, I just think it's good to talk about this so that the listeners out there know, you know, what you do and the value that you bring. And we'll have all the show notes, all the links in the show notes. You can just go on LinkedIn, ladies and gentlemen, go to Joe Frankie the third, and you can find him. Otherwise you can go to the show notes and click on those and it'll take you to him. So now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Well, um, my worst investment was uh, working on a deal in China. 
And it's not that the there was anything wrong with China. There was not that there was anything wrong with the people I was, the team I was working with. There was nothing wrong with the cooperative venture. There wasn't anything wrong with the uh, Chinese partners, in fact. So this was my first real outing, you know, coming out of the military. So, you know, I understand project management. I understand big uh, projects. And so what this was going to be was about a three to five billion dollar effort, cooperative joint venture to build water and wastewater infrastructure in China. And it was banded in a certain niche, you know, because the real big deals, you know, went to GE and Viola and all of that kind of stuff. So this was, you know, the smaller deals. And we were working with, uh, you know, our, our cooperative venture with our Chinese partners, and they had a network, or let's just say a couple engineering companies. And the challenge um, at that particular time because, you know, China is evolving, you know, by the, by the second. But at that particular time, they were really trying to, you know, in the, and still are, uh, get their wa- wastewater treatment infrastructure together. And so the challenge that the Chinese companies had was it was a build, operate, transfer. So the government was getting out of, you know, being the, you know, water plant operators, you know, and and that kind of stuff and going to a, a more commercial model. And so consequently, when you needed to bid on these things and you you bid and if say you make it to the final three and say it was say it was a $10 million project for the sake of uh, numbers. When you went to the final three, you had to put up a letter of credit for 33 and a third percent which meant that, you know, if you got picked, they executed that letter of credit and you were all in. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, but the challenge that the uh, Chinese companies had was, okay, they didn't have the working capital necessary to be in multiple projects, even though they had the bandwidth and the capability, they ended up having to kind of finish one project, you know, get the return. And then that allowed them to get into another one. Whereas they really could be doing as many as, you know, five to 10 of these, you know, and that's just a kind of a guess on my part. The only thing that was holding them back was the funding. So the cooperative joint venture was there to provide them the capital necessary to do multiple ventures. And like I say, these were in the smaller range where you weren't, you know, competing against these countrywide things. And secondly, the provinces were getting kind of an attaboy for finding a way to get any kind of outside money into their province. So this met a a lot of different things. And the structure was put together so that each project was independent, you know, and the Chinese partners liked it because there was a funding structure by which the uh, money was outside of China, you know, and all of that was, you know, above board, you know, on the front end. And so we're working away at this. And naturally, this is not a one-month deal. This is, you know, a couple of years effort uh, going into that. And so to make a long story short, so we're there with term sheets with two companies that you would uh, immediately recognize. And so we're in the throes of uh, getting those together. One of them was a big financial investment concern 
out of um, the Pacific and the other one was, you know, in, in the U.S. And so what happens is you have the Lehman Brothers debacle. And so then what happens is all this money that was going to come out of um, retirement funds and all this kind of stuff, because they liked the idea that this was public infrastructure, mm. you know, and uh, force majeure was handled, you know, in effect. They wouldn't come right out and say it right. by the government, but the water district would handle it, which is really the government. Mm. And so there was all of these other authorities like the long term guaranteed return of that. And so what happened overnight is all of the rules, you know, kind of on moving money, you know, internationally were at least taking, you know, you couldn't get an answer because nobody would, you know, would make a decision. And the so markets froze up. Yeah. In other words, so you almost have a force majeure type thing in the financial system, mm. you know, and uh, naturally, these are all things waiting for bid. And you did the best you can to try to resurrect that. But that just turned out to be a, a disaster, at least in time. Mm. And, uh, <laughs> you know, if you ask my wife about that, she said, well, you know, it's the worst thing that ever happened to you. And she said, no, it's not. I said, I got a PhD on how to put a deal together in China. I just don't have any money to show for it. <laughs> <laughs> But that, that's, that's the life. life. That's life. I mean, you know, and so what I'd say to other people is you can, you can be involved in just about anything and you're going to have something that puts you in a cul-de-sac, mm. you know, and there's no way out of that cul-de-sac, you know, after you try to penetrate to the left and to the right, other than to back out of that cul-de-sac. And, uh, you know, and so I, the only thing I look back on is I wouldn't have traded the traded the experience for anything. I just, you know, wrote checks for three years right. and, you know, there wasn't any return because there wasn't a closing, right? Yeah. Term sheets never came to, to closing. So let's review or summarize the lessons that you learn. And I think, you know, one of the ones that I'm hearing you say is that I, I like what you said about a cul-de-sac, you know, like there's just a dead end. There's some situations in our life where it literally is a dead end. Sorry, sorry you're there. But, you know, so yeah, how would you describe the lessons that you learned? So the lesson I learned as a military person, you know, I'm just used to, hey, somebody gave you a mission, okay? And, you know, either come back on your shield or with your shield. That's the way you operate. So there's Failure is kind of not an option. And what I learned in the private sector is, well, you really don't like failure, but you need to recognize uh, that you don't have a way out. It's a cul-de-sac. You just kind of need to back out of it. And the sooner that you get on to something else, you know, that you evaluate that's productive rather than spend any more time, you know, I, I wasn't going to fix the financial situation. Yeah, yeah. You know, if there was something wrong with our deal, our partners, or, you know, a person involved, there's methodologies to do the workarounds, right? Mm. But <laughs> not when, the, you know, it's kind of like, okay, City Hall says, <laughs> you know, you can, you, you can spend your life fighting City Hall, but yeah, not going to um, happen. 
So maybe I'll summarize something I took away from your story. I think recently I wrote a video that kind of is, goes against, and I, I produced a little video that goes against what I've always felt, which is that you're in control. You control your destiny. But the older I get, I realize, first of all, there's randomness, just randomness in life. And that randomness can come in and you don't have any control over that, number one. Number two is that there are factors in your life that just happen. And I, my point was in the video that I did, which was to young people, this is not your fault. Now, that's not something I used to say when I was young. But basically, and it's part of my prediction is that in the next couple of years, I think we're going to get a youth versus older people revolt. Because so many of the decisions of what older folks have done in politics and other things and in health and all of these things are just putting so much pressure on young people. And think about the number of young people that are listening to this who are just despondent about opportunities and even maybe even have lost their will to work or their desire or they haven't you know, there's just so much damage that's gone on. And my point is, is, it's not your fault. But the way you react to it, of course, is your responsibility. Absolutely. That's your attitude. Yeah. So I think that it's just also another important lesson in life that there's just sometimes that you just got to walk away and you cannot, you know, putting in more effort into it isn't going to make any difference. <laughs> that's correct what was the uh, song you got to know when to hold them know when to fold them, them. know when to walk away right. learn when to run <laughs> a lot of good <laughs> advice in, in those four 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 little uh, statements yeah what a great song so based upon what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn in your life, because that was a while ago, you've learned a lot and you've faced another kind of somewhat uncontrollable situation. What, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Well, I think you have to be attuned to the environment. Okay. Uh, you know, this one was, it was easier, I would say, because all of a sudden, I mean, the whole financial sector just kind of hiccuped and then everybody's oh what are we going to do mm. now so all the kind of uh, normal operating rules either were on pause or they were going to be uh, re revamped and i liken that to um you know back when i was uh, chief of staff of the army and air force exchange service headquarters and in uh, Dallas, Texas, you had 9-11 happen. We're getting ready to have a 20-year anniversary. Well, you know, I spent the next two years redoing all the business processes so that the company could operate in a post-9-11 environment. In other words, okay, now you needed, uh, all your truck drivers needed Twit cards. Uh, you needed background checks. There's certain kinds of uh, bills of lighting that, you know, had to be changed. And it was just two years of re-engineering everything. And so uh, I don't know what it is going to be for the next generation, but you're going to deal with volatility, uncertainty, and all of that kind of stuff. And so the sooner that you recognize that you're in that situation, the sooner I think, and the better off you'll 
you'll be, you know, making your quick assessments and determining what you want to do. Mm, yep. Great advice. All right. Last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? My number one goal is to continue to promote the book. Our book is out there. It's called LinkedIn, the five minute drill for executive networking success. Now it says executive and we put the executive in there because executives will read it. And, but it's a one hour read. And so uh, I've got many uh, high school seniors that are using it in a business class. And so I'm getting calls and questions from high school seniors. So don't think that it's a complicated book. And I think the hardest thing I ever done in my life is run a, a write with Lori Ruff, a one hour book. But I knew that people wouldn't read it, you know, if you didn't make it, you know, simple and get to the bottom line up, up front. And we'll have a link to that on the show notes. And is there any other way? Can they go, let's say, uh, go into Amazon or because I've got your link. I'm going to put that in the in the show notes. We're in every major. So the book was published by Morgan James Publishing, which is a world renowned Mm. publisher. And so it's in all the markets. We're even on Target online. We're not physically in the stores, but it's available in ebook and print. And both are under 10 bucks. Just out of curiosity, I've heard this name before, Morgan James Publishing, for myself and for the other people out there that are thinking about publishing a book. Why did you use this particular firm? Morgan James Publishing earns their ability every day. So we have our complete copyright. So I can walk up and publish the book with another publisher tomorrow. And the way he says, we're not going to, you know, impinge your copyright. We're going to earn your business every day that you're with us. So I can go take it somewhere else, but there's no need to because I've been treated right. And I like the way they do business. And they try to do, I think about, look at about 400 books a year and publish about 40. Mm. Well, that tells you that we at least made the top 10%. There you go. And what's different about the way that they promote that book? I know a lot of people have, or help you, or help you think about that. A lot of people have disappointing times with publishers. I mean, I've done all mine self-publishing because I just didn't want to deal with the whole publisher thing. But what's right. different about these guys? These guys uh, put you through the hoops. You know, in other words, break it all down. You work through it. It was the first book we'd ever written, so I hadn't been down that. Mm. At least Lori, my co-author, had a couple of books under her belt. And so she was very helpful at at doing that. What I would say to you is plan on, if you go with at least Morgan James, once you get it, it's not like, hey, we got it. You're done, all that kind of stuff. It takes a little longer than you would expect. Mm. But what they did was getting get into all the buying cycles Right. Of the various book system. And so we got feedback from Amazon buyers, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million buyers. I mean, on the book itself. I mean, they actually read the book Mm. and we made adjustments to the book. You know, what do we know about selling books? So, you know, anybody that gave us advice that's going to make it a little bit better for us. Hey, I'm listening and I'm 
I'm saying, yes, sir. You know, if it makes sense, you know, it doesn't change the book. Yep. And I'm looking at the book. I'm just on Amazon right now. And I see that you have 40 ratings and 4.9 out of five. So fantastic work. Yeah. That's exciting. It is. Uh, most women tell me they read it in 45 minutes. And I, if you ever told me that I'd have to pay a company to certify the reading time, which is on the back cover, it's a 69-minute certified read. I said, what in the hell do I have to do this for? And they said, well, people buy books for other people. So they want to know how long mm. it takes to read. And I said, that made perfect sense to me. Yeah. And so we, we really pushed during the season for like grandparents and parents to get it for college students. Right. So ladies and gentlemen, just as we're talking right now, I just bought my copy and it is going to be arriving in my Kindle so I challenge everyone else out there to get it and see how you can improve on your LinkedIn. Also, you can reach out to Joe at any time through LinkedIn, but also through the links on the show notes. So let me ask you last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Well, continue to market the book because what we missed was all the book shows and, you know, the, you know, go do the book things through the mm -hmm. bookstores and, you know, all this COVID stuff, you know, the book came out right dead center in the middle of all this stuff. So we really had to, uh, you know, vector off into, Hey, we got to get this thing merchandised online and, and, and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing is uh, I want to continue. Uh, you know, I coach one-on-one -on -one people. I've done 600 and no 767 as of two days ago, and that's international. So I've coached people in Hong Kong, Thailand, Singapore, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, France, Germany, England. Mm. So what does that, just, just uh, briefly, what does that look like? So if someone listening, they say, okay, I, I'd like some of that. Well, what does that look what, like? What's it look like is, hey, we start out at the very beginning. Where are you at? Where you want to go? And if we can define those two points, then there's a way that I can help architect a LinkedIn bridge for you to get from where you are now to where you want to go. Now, some of that might even be, Hey, you got to go get this certification. Hey, you need education in this, you know, you, this is your goal. And so the important thing is to get it merchandised on LinkedIn. Cause like I said, most people just have either a fear or reluctance to properly merchandise themselves. And as Dizzy Dean you know, uh, once said, it ain't bragging if you've done it. <laughs> Roof's that's, in the pudding. Yep, that's great. So, yeah, and I uh, I have a course called Valuation Masterclass Bootcamp, and it's a six-week bootcamp. But one of the things I do is I start them working on their profiles, you know, and their profiles are awful. You know? yeah. and, and I teach them just some basic stuff, you know, tell a story, come up with yeah. what your uniqueness is. And then, then, you know, it's amazing. Like they say, hey, people are starting to contact me <laughs> and it happens during the six weeks. Like one guy got a job because he changed some things around. He got it more attractive and then he got a job offer. So, you know, this is real stuff, ladies and gentlemen. So, all right. Yeah, well, it's all about, it's all about the bait. Yep. If you want to catch a certain kind of fish, you need the right kind of bait. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of people fishing with a hook. 
with no yeah bait. with no bait on it yeah exactly <laughs> i'm sitting there i i'm doing my time i got it in there i got my hook in there but without the bait you ain't getting nothing <laughs> all right well listeners there you have it another story of loss to keep you winning my number one goal for the next 12 months is to help you my listeners to reduce risks and increase return in your life. To achieve this, I've created our community at myworstinvestmentever.com. And when you join, remember, you get that special discount on the Valuation Masterclass Bootcamp. As we conclude, Joe, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. And on behalf of A. Stotts Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Yeah, I I would say your LinkedIn profile is your billboard to the world. Don't sell yourself short. Beautiful. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.